Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. The great romantic swashbuckler set against the backdrop of the French Revolution. This is the 10th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. The great romantic swashbuckler set against the backdrop of the French Revolution. This is the 10th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. Chapter 4. The League of the Scarlet Pimpernel. They all looked a merry, even a happy party, as they sat round the table. Sir Andrew Foulkes and Lord Anthony Dewhurst, two typical, good-looking, well-born and well-bred Englishmen of that year of grace, 1792, and the aristocratic French Comtesse with her two children, who had just escaped from such dire perils and found a safe retreat at last on the shores of protecting England. In the corner, the two strangers had apparently finished their game. One of them arose, and standing with his back to the merry company at the table, he adjusted, with much deliberation, his large, triple-caped coat. As he did so, he gave one quick glance all round him. Everyone was busy laughing and chatting, and he murmured the words, All safe. His companion then, with the alertness born of long practice, slipped onto his knees in a moment, and the next had crept noiselessly under the oak bench. The stranger then, with a loud, Good night, quietly walked out of the coffee room. Not one of those at the supper-table had noticed this curious and silent manoeuvre. But when the stranger finally closed the door of the coffee-room behind him, they all instinctively sighed a sigh of relief. "'Ah, oh, alone at last,' said Lord Antony. Then the young Vicomte de Tournay rose, glass in hand, and with the graceful affection peculiar to the times, he raised it aloft— and said, in broken English, To His Majesty George III of England, God bless him for his hospitality to us all, poor exiles from France. His Majesty the King, echoed Lord Antony and Sir Andrew, as they drank loyally to the toast. To His Majesty King Louis of France, added Sir Andrew, with solemnity, may God protect him and give him victory over his enemies. Everyone rose and drank this toast in silence. The fate of the unfortunate king of France, then a prisoner of his own people, seemed to cast a gloom even over Mr. Jellyband's pleasant countenance. "'And to Monsieur le Comte de Tournay de Bastrive,' said Lord Antony, merrily. "'May we welcome him in England before many days are over.' "'Ah, monsieur,' said the Comtesse, 
as with a slightly trembling hand, she conveyed her glass to her lips. I scarcely dare to hope. But already Lord Antony had served out the soup, and for the next few moments all conversation ceased, while Jellyband and Sally handed round the plates and everyone began to eat. Faith, madame, said Lord Antony after a while. Mine was no idle toast. Saying yourself, Mademoiselle Suzanne, and my friend the Vicomte safely in England now, surely you must feel reassured as to the fate of Monsieur le Comte. Ah, monsieur, replied the Comtesse, with a heavy sigh, I trust in God. I can but pray and hope. Aye, madame, here interposed Sir Andrew Folks, trust in God by all means, but believe also a little in your English friends, who have sworn to bring the Count safely across the Channel, even as they have wrought you today. Indeed, indeed, monsieur, I have the fullest confidence in you and your friends. Your fame, I assure you, has spread throughout the whole of France. The way some of my own friends have escaped from the clutches of that awful revolutionary tribunal was nothing short of a miracle, a miracle, and all done by you and your friends. We were but the hands, Madame la Comtesse. But my husband, monsieur, said the Comtesse, whilst unshed tears seemed to veil her voice. He is in such deadly peril. I would never have left him only. There were my children. I was torn between my duty to him and to them. They refused to go without me, and you and your friends assured me so solemnly that my husband would be safe. But, oh, now that I am here amongst you all, in this beautiful, free England, I, I think of him. "'flying for his life, hunted like a poor beast in such peril. "'Oh, I, I should not have left him. "'I should not have left him.' "'The poor woman had completely broken down. "'Fatigue, sorrow, and emotion had overmastered her rigid aristocratic bearing. "'She was crying gently to herself, "'while Suzanne ran up to her and tried to kiss away her tears.' Lord Antony and Sir Andrew had said nothing to interrupt the Comtesse while she was speaking. There was no doubt that they felt deeply for her. Their very silence testified to that. But in every century, and ever since England has been what it is, an Englishman has always felt somehow ashamed of his own emotion and of his own sympathy. And so the two young men said nothing and busied themselves in trying to hide their feelings, only succeeding in looking immeasurably sheepish. "'As for me, monsieur,' said Suzanne suddenly, as she looked through a wealth of brown curls across at Sir Andrew, "'I trust you absolutely, and I know that you will bring my dear father safely to England, just as you brought us today.' This was said with so much confidence, such unuttered hope and belief, that it seemed as if by magic to dry the mother's eyes, and to bring a smile upon everyone's lips. "'Nay, you shame me, mademoiselle,' replied Sir Andrew, "'though my life is at your service. I have been but a humble tool in the hands of our great leader, who organized and effected your escape.' 
He had spoken with so much warmth and vehemence that Suzanne's eyes fastened upon him in undisguised wonder. "'Your leader, monsieur?' said the Comtesse eagerly. "'Ah, of course you must have a leader, and I did not think of that before. But tell me, where is he? I must go to him at once, and I and my children must throw ourselves at his feet and thank him for all that he has done for us.' <laughs> "'Alas, madame,' said Lord Antony, "'that is impossible.' "'Impossible? But why?' "'because the Scarlet Pimpernel works in the dark, "'and his identity is only known under the solemn oath of secrecy "'to his immediate followers.' "'The Scarlet Pimpernel?' said Suzanne, with a merry laugh. Oh, "'Why, what a droll name! "'What is the Scarlet Pimpernel, monsieur?' "'She looked at Sir Andrew with eager curiosity. "'The young man's face had become almost transfigured.' His eyes shone with enthusiasm. Hero-worship, love, admiration for his leader seemed literally to glow upon his face. "'The Scarlet Pimpernel, mademoiselle,' he said at last, "'is the name of a humble English wayside flower. But it is also the name chosen to hide the identity of the best and bravest man in all the world, so that he may better succeed in accomplishing the noble task he has set himself to do. Ah, yes, here interposed the young vicomte. I have heard speak of this scarlet pimpernel. A little flower, red, yes. They say in Paris that every time a royalist escapes to England, that devil Fouquet d'Anville, the public prosecutor, receives a paper with that little flower designated in red upon it, yes? Yes, that is so, assented Lord Antony. Then he will have received one such paper today. Undoubtedly. Oh, I wonder what he will say, said Suzanne. "'I have heard that the picture of that little red flower "'is the only thing that frightens him.' "'Faith, then,' said Sir Andrew, "'he will have many more opportunities "'of studying the shape of that small scarlet flower.' "'Ah, oh, monsieur,' sighed the Comtesse, "'it all sounds like a romance, "'and I cannot understand it all. "'Why should you try, madame? "'But tell me, why should your leader, why should you all spend your money and, and risk your lives, for it is your lives you risk, monsieur, when you set foot in France, and all for us French men and women who are nothing to you? Sport, Madame la Comtesse, sport, asserted Lord Antony, with his jovial, loud and pleasant voice. We are a nation of sportsmen, you know, and just now it is the fashion to pull the hair from between the teeth of the hound. Oh, no, 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 not sport only, monsieur. You have a more noble motive, I am sure, for the good work that you do. Faith, madame, I would like you to find it, then. As for me, I vow, I love the game, for this is the finest sport I have yet encountered. Hair-breath escapes, the devil's own risks, a tally-ho, and away we go. But the Comtesse shook her head, still incredulously. To her it seemed preposterous that these young men and their great leader, all of them rich, well-born, and young, should for no other motive than sport run the terrible risks which she knew they were constantly doing. 
Their nationality, once they had set foot in France, would be no safeguard to them. Anyone found harboring or assisting suspecting royalists would be ruthlessly condemned and summarily executed, whatever his nationality might be. And this young band of Englishmen had, to her own knowledge, bearded the implacable and bloodthirsty tribunal of the revolution within the very walls of Paris itself, and had snatched away condemned victims almost from the very foot of the guillotine. With a shudder, she recalled the events of the last few days. Her escape from Paris with her two children, all three of them hidden beneath the hood of a rickety cart and lying amidst a heap of turnips and cabbages, not daring to breathe, while the mob howled, À la lanterne, les aristos! at the awful West Barricade. It had all occurred in such a miraculous way. She and her husband had understood that they had been placed on the list of suspected persons, which meant that their trial and death were but a matter of days, of hours, perhaps. Then came the hope of salvation. The mysterious epistle, signed with the enigmatical scarlet device, the clear peremptory directions, the parting from the Comte de Tournay, which had torn the poor wife's heart in two, the hope of reunion. The flight with her two children, the covered cart, that awful hag driving it, who looked like some horrible evil demon with the ghastly trophy on her whip-handle. The Comtesse looked round at the quaint, old-fashioned English inn, the peace of this land of civil and religious liberty, and she closed her eyes to shut out the haunting vision of that West Barricade and of the mob retreating panic-stricken when the old hag spoke of the plague. Every moment under that cart she expected recognition, arrest, herself and her children tried and condemned, and these young Englishmen, under the guidance of their brave and mysterious leader, had risked their lives to save them all, as they had already saved scores of other innocent people. And all only for sport? Impossible. Suzanne's eyes, as she sought those of Sir Andrew, plainly told him that she thought that he, at any rate, rescued his fellow men from terrible and unmerited death through a higher and nobler motive than his friend would have her believe. How many are there in your brave league, monsieur? she asked timidly. Twenty, all told, mademoiselle, he replied. One to command and nineteen to obey. All of us Englishmen, and all pledged to the same cause, to obey our leader and to rescue the innocent. May God protect you all, monsieur, said the Comtesse fervently. He has done that so far, madame. It is wonderful, wonderful to me, wonderful, that you should all be so brave, so devoted to your fellow men, yet you are English, and in France treachery is rife all in the name of liberty and fraternity. The women, even in France, have been more bitter against us aristocrats than the men, said the Vicomte, with a sigh. Ah, yes, added the Comtesse, while a look of haughty disdain and intense bitterness shot through her melancholy eyes. There was that woman, Marguerite Saint-Just, for instance. She denounced the Marquis de Saint-Cyr and all his family to the awful tribunal of the terror. Marguerite Saint-Just? 
said Lord Antony, as he shot a quick and apprehensive glance across at Sir Andrew. Marguerite St. Just? Surely. Yes, replied the Comtesse. Surely you know her. She was a leading actress of the Comédie Française, and she married an Englishman lately. You must know her. Know her, said Lord Antony. No Lady Blakeney, the most fashionable woman in London, the wife of the richest man in England? Of course, we all know Lady Blakeney. She was a schoolfellow of mine at the convent in Paris, although much further advanced in her studies, interposed Suzanne, and we came over to England together to learn your language. I was very fond of Marguerite, and I cannot believe that she ever did anything so wicked. It certainly seems incredible, said Sir Andrew. You say that she actually denounced the Marquis de Saint-Cyr? Why should she have done such a thing? Surely there must be some mistake. No mistake is possible, monsieur, rejoined the Comtesse coldly. Marguerite Saint-Just's brother is a noted Republican. There was some talk of a family feud between him and my cousin, the Marquis de Saint-Cyr. The Sanchez are quite plebeian, and the Republican government employs many spies. I assure you, there is no mistake. You had not heard this story? Faith, madame, I did hear some vague rumors of it, but in England no one would credit it. Sir Percy Blakeney, her husband, is a very wealthy man of high social position— the intimate friend of the Prince of Wales, and Lady Blakeney leads both fashion and society in London. That may be, monsieur, and we shall, of course, lead a very quiet life in England. But I pray God that while I remain in this beautiful country, I may never meet Marguerite Saint-Just. The proverbial wet blanket seemed to have fallen over the merry little company gathered round the table. Suzanne looked sad and silent. Sir Andrew fidgeted uneasily with his fork, whilst the Comtesse, encased in the plate armor of her aristocratic prejudices, sat rigid and unbending in her straight-backed chair. As for Lord Antony, he looked extremely uncomfortable and glanced once or twice apprehensively towards a jelly-band, who looked just as uncomfortable as himself. At what time do you expect Sir Percy and Lady Blakeney? He contrived to whisper unobserved to mine host. Any moment, my lord, whispered Jellyband in reply. Even as he spoke, a distant clatter was heard of an approaching coach. Louder and louder it grew. One or two shouts became distinguishable. Then the rattle of horses' hooves on the uneven cobblestones, and the next moment a stable-boy had thrown open the coffee-room door and rushed in excitedly. "'Sir Percy Blakeney and my lady!' he shouted at the top of his voice. "'They're just arriving!' And with more shouting, jingling of harness, and iron hooves upon the stones, a magnificent coach, drawn by four superb bays, had halted outside the porch of the Fisherman's Rest. Chapter 5 Marguerite in a moment, the pleasant oak-raftered coffee-room of the inn became the scene of hopeless confusion and discomfort. 
At the first announcement made by the stable boy, Lord Antony, with a fashionable oath, had jumped up from his seat and was now giving many and confused directions to poor, bewildered Jellyband, who seemed at his wit's end what to do. For goodness sake, man, admonished his lordship, try to keep Lady Blakeney talking outside for a moment while the ladies withdraw. Zoons, he added, with another more emphatic oath, this is most unfortunate. "'Quick, Sally! The candles!' shouted Jellyband, as, hopping about from one leg to another, he ran hither and thither, adding to the general discomfort of everybody. The Comtesse, too, had risen to her feet, rigid and erect, trying to hide her excitement beneath more becoming sang-froid. She repeated mechanically, "'I will not see her! I will not see her!' Outside, the excitement attended upon the arrival of very important guests grew apace. "'Good day, Sir Percy!' "'Good day to your lordship!' "'Your servant, Sir Percy!' was heard in one long-continued chorus, with alternate more feeble tones of, "'Remember the poor blind man! Of your charity, lady and gentlemen!' Then suddenly a singularly sweet voice was heard through all the din, let the poor man be, and give him some supper at my expense. The voice was low and musical, with a slight sing-song in it, and a faint soupçon of foreign intonation in the pronunciation of the consonants. Everyone in the coffee-room heard it, and paused instinctively, listening to it for a moment. Sally was holding the candles by the opposite door, which led to the bedrooms upstairs, and the Comtesse was in the act of beating a hasty retreat before that enemy who owned such a sweet musical voice. Suzanne reluctantly was preparing to follow her mother, while casting regretful glances towards the door, where she hoped still to see her dearly beloved erstwhile schoolfellow. Then Jellyband threw open the door, still stupidly and blindly hoping to avert the catastrophe, which he felt was in the air, and the same low musical voice said, with a merry laugh and mock consternation, Brrr, I am as wet as a herring. Oh, dear, has anyone ever seen such a contemptible climate? Suzanne, come with me at once. I wish it said the Comtesse peremptorily. "'Oh, mamma," pleaded Suzanne. Oh, uh, my lady, um, uh, my lady,' came in feeble accents from Jellyband, who stood clumsily trying to bar the way. "'Thou Dieu, my good man,' said Lady Blakeney, with some impatience, "'what are you standing in my way for, dancing about like a turkey with a sore foot? Let me get to the fire, I am perished with the cold.' And the next moment, Lady Blakeney, gently pushing mine host on one side, had swept into the coffee-room. There are many portraits and miniatures extant of Marguerite Saint-Just, Lady Blakeney as she was then, but it is doubtful if any of these really do her singular beauty justice. Tall, above the average, with magnificent presence and regal figure, it is small wonder that even the Comtesse paused for a moment in involuntary admiration before turning her back on so fascinating an apparition. Marguerite Blakeney was then scarcely five-and-twenty, and her beauty was at its most dazzling stage. 
The large hat, with its undulating and waving plumes, threw a soft shadow across the classic brow with the aureole of auburn hair free at the moment from any powder. The sweet mouth, the straight chiseled nose, round chin and delicate throat all seemed set off by the picturesque costume of the period. The rich blue velvet robe molded in its every line the graceful contour of the figure, whilst one shapely hand held, with a dignity all its own, the tall stick adorned with a large bunch of ribbons which fashionable ladies of the period had taken to carrying recently. With a quick glance all round the room, Marguerite Blakeney had taken stock of everyone there— she nodded pleasantly to Sir Andrew Fawkes, while extending a hand to Lord Antony. "'Hallo, my Lord Antony. Why, what are you doing here in Dover?' Then, without waiting for a reply, she turned and faced the Comtesse and Suzanne. Her whole face lighted up with additional brightness as she stretched out both arms towards the girl. Why, if it isn't my little Suzanne over there. Pardieu, little citizeness, how came you to be in England? And Madame, too. She went up effusive to them both, with not a single touch of embarrassment in her manner or in her smile. Lord Tony and Sir Andrew watched the little scene with eager apprehension. English, though they were, they had often been in France, and had mixed sufficiently with the French to realize the unbending hauteur, the bitter hatred with which the old noblesse of France viewed all those who had helped to contribute to their downfall. Armand Saint-Just, the brother of beautiful Lady Blakeney, though known to hold moderate and conciliatory views, was an ardent Republican, his feud with the ancient family of Saint-Cyr, the rights and wrongs of which no outsider ever knew, had culminated in the downfall, the almost total extinction of the latter. In France, Saint-Just and his party had triumphed, and here in England, face to face with these three refugees driven from their country, flying for their lives, bereft of all which centuries of luxury had given them, there stood a fair scion of those same Republican families which had hurled down a throne and uprooted an aristocracy whose origin was lost in the dim and distant vista of bygone centuries. She stood there before them, in all the unconscious insolence of beauty, and stretched out her dainty hand to them, as if she would, by that one act, bridge over the conflict and bloodshed of the past decade. "'Suzanne, I forbid you to speak to that woman,' said the Comtesse sternly, as she placed a restraining hand upon her daughter's arm. She had spoken in English, so that all might hear and understand, the two young gentlemen, as well as the common innkeeper and his daughter. The latter literally gasped with horror at this foreign insolence, this impudence before her ladyship, who was English.' now that she was Sir Percy's wife, and a friend of the Princess of Wales to boot. As for Lord Antony and Sir Andrew Fuchs, their very hearts seemed to stand still with horror at this gratuitous insult. One of them uttered an exclamation of appeal, the other one of warning, and instinctively both glanced hurriedly towards the door, whence a slow, drawly, not unpleasant voice had already been heard. 
alone among those present, Marguerite Blakeney and the Comtesse de Tournay had remained seemingly unmoved. The latter, rigid, erect, and defiant, with one hand still upon her daughter's arm, seemed the very personification of unbending pride. For the moment, Marguerite's sweet face had become as white as the soft fichu which swathed her throat, and a very keen observer might have noted that the hand which held the tall bee-ribboned stick was clenched and trembled somewhat. But this was only momentary. The next instant the delicate eyebrows were raised slightly, the lips curved sarcastically upwards, the clear blue eyes looked straight at the rigid comtesse, and with a slight shrug of the shoulders, "'Hoity-toity, citizeness,' she said gaily, "'what fly stings you, pray?' "'We are in England now, madame,' rejoined the comtesse coldly." "'and I am at liberty to forbid my daughter "'to touch your hand in friendship. "'Come, Suzanne.' "'She beckoned to her daughter, "'and without another look at Marguerite Blakeney, "'but with a deep, old-fashioned curtsy "'to the two young men, "'she sailed majestically out of the room. "'There was silence in the old inn-parlour for a moment "'as the rustle of the Comtesse's skirts "'died away down the passage. "'Marguerite, Rigid as a statue, followed with hard, set eyes the upright figure as it disappeared through the doorway. But as little Suzanne, humble and obedient, was about to follow her mother, the hard, set expression suddenly vanished, and a wistful, almost pathetic and childlike look stole into Lady Blakeney's eyes. Suzanne caught that look. The young woman's sweet nature went out to the beautiful woman, scarcely older than herself. Filial obedience vanished before girlish sympathy. At the door, she turned, ran back to Marguerite, and putting her arms round her, kissed her effusively. Then only did she follow her mother. Sally bringing up the rear, with a final curtsy to my lady— Suzanne's sweet and dainty impulse had relieved the unpleasant tension. Sir Andrew's eyes followed the pretty little figure until it had quite disappeared. Then they met Lady Blakeney's with unassumed merriment. Marguerite, with dainty affection, had kissed her hand to the ladies as they disappeared through the door. Then a humorous smile began hovering round the corners of her mouth. So that's it, is it? "'Oh, la, Sir Andrew, did you ever see such an unpleasant person? "'I hope when I grow old I shan't look like that.' "'She gathered up her skirts and, assuming a majestic gait, "'stalked towards the fireplace. "'Suzanne,' she said, mimicking the Comtesse's voice, "'I forbid you to speak to that woman.' <laughs> "'The laugh which accompanied this sally sounded perhaps a trifle forced and hard, "'but neither Sir Andrew nor Lord Tony were very keen observers. "'The mimicry was so perfect, the tone of the voice so accurately reproduced, "'that both the young men joined in a hearty, cheerful, "'Bravo!' "'Ah, Lady Blakeney,' added Lord Tony. "'How they must miss you at the Comédie Française, "'and how the Parisians must hate Sir Percy for having taken you away.' "'Ladman,' rejoined Marguerite, with a shrug of her graceful shoulders, "'tis impossible to hate Sir Percy for anything. "'His witty sallies would disarm even Madame la Comtesse herself.' 
the young vicomte, who had not elected to follow his mother in her dignified exit, now made a step forward, ready to champion the comtesse should Lady Blakeney aim any further shafts at her. But before he could utter a preliminary word of protest, a pleasant, though distinctly inane, laugh was heard from outside, and the next moment an unusually tall and very richly dressed figure appeared in the doorway. But before he could utter a preliminary word of protest, a pleasant, though distinctly inane laugh was heard from outside, and the next moment an unusually tall and very richly dressed figure appeared in the doorway. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Scarlet Pimpernel. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.